podcast, deconstructing foiling, flow, and the learning process with your host, Eric Antonsen. What's up, folks? Thank you for tuning in to the pod. Today's guest on the show is Steve Tobis. Steve is a Maui-based waterman who is focused on downwind racing and pushing the limits on foil in big surf. Uh, if you follow Steve on Instagram, you're going to see him building out jet skis. He builds skis for some of the world's best watermen, and he's always designing foil-related gear in CAD. He's a mechanical engineer. Uh, that's his background, and he's bringing that approach into foiling. And I love I love talking with everyone on the podcast, but the nerd in me really loves speaking with people on the show who have that analytical approach to foiling because there is so much science in foiling. It's really cool to nerd out on some of those details. And we do a little bit of that in this podcast. Um, so stay tuned for the interview with Steve. Real quick before we dive in. Uh, number one, the forum. I don't really talk about the forum much on the podcast and I should because I spend a lot of time reading on the forum lately and it's really cool what it has become. Um, it has grown a lot in it's almost a year now I think that we've had it up and there we're averaging a hundred thousand or a little bit more now we've just gone north of a hundred thousand uh, page views a month and I only know that because I just got a an email saying that we've exceeded our current hosting plan and we've got to upgrade that. Um, so I guess that's a really good thing. And we're about 900 registered users. It's a very active forum. There's really cool stuff always happening on the forum. Some of the, the stuff that's on the forum currently, some, some topics that people are discussing, foiling performance and injury prevention. Uh, somebody's checking in about travel and what kind of bags you know you get a lot of tidbits there about how you can pack for trips um, new generation of long and narrow foil boards uh, paddle type for downwind foil discussions about the new progression mast foil drive is there tech yet for advanced foilers um, concussion and neck injury reduction i chimed in on that one i have a lot to say uh, from my thoughts on that talking about the benefits of helmets so if you haven't checked out the forum yet, it is at forum.progressionproject.com. Go over there and check it out. And I should say that I think I'm going to start, or I am going to start some advertising on the forum. And so if you're interested in that, it's probably just going to be some simple banner ads, click right to whatever. There's no restrictions on who can advertise, you know, any of the brands, a lot of brands have already contacted. I'm going to be rolling that out in the next little bit. I'm just finalizing pricing and kind of options tiers right now trying to get a gauge of interest and, and value but if you're interested in doing that um, go check out the forum and just shoot me a dm let me know so that's cool and then the last thing i want to say before we dive in is winging what a flipping surprise it has gone from being bottom tier only doing it if there's no other options to something I'm like really looking forward to. And it's, it's generally speaking, this time of year, I start to get really depressed. I mean, yesterday was the time change. I can't stand that historically. And 
it's just nor'easters, and the nor'easters will just just destroy the surf here. For like the last one we had, I think was like eight days or nine days. I mean, it just big gnarly. Brian and I did have an, an epic runner uh, last week at one point. One of the best I've I've done. Like insanely fast, just just crazy. Um, but generally speaking, it's been been pretty darn bad and tough to get through. And now we have found all these little tucked away spots where you get some wraparound swells and some inlets or you have some jetties that block things or you have chums which turns into the hood river downwind thing and this last nor'easter that we just got through was like one of the craziest most fun weeks that i've had in a while on foil and maybe it's because i'm in that fun part of the learning phase right now where i'm through all the bullshit i'm through all the stuff that's just like banging your head on your board and wanting to quit the sport to the point where now i'm getting to integrate things that I know from prone and toe and into drawing lines and surfing with the wing. I mean, I've just kind of gotten there, uh, but it's just an absolute blast. And then the other thing that's just changed is I've just dropped down from the wing boards, the bigger stuff to the quiver killer slash enigma portal is going to call the mid length stuff that we're doing the enigma. That's our name for it. And that has just opened up where I want to be on a wave, uh, having a board that I feel really comfortable on. And what's classic is that I haven't taken my mast off of that board now in like two weeks. I mean, towed it, proned it, sent a runner slash downwinder because you can go so far offshore because you have the power paddle power. You don't care about being offshore. And then the whole winging thing, it's just it's kind of wild. I've got a trip probably coming up here in a month and a half. And I think I'm going to bring two boards. I'm going to bring that and a little tow board and that's it, <laughs> which is pretty ridiculously awesome. Um, so anyways, I just love how the sport has so many layers and you know, you start getting a little stale in a few of them and then something else pops up. And I feel like we have decades it's it's a sport where you can stay technically in the same sport and not get bored i mean i guess i'm five years in at this point and it still feels new because there's these new little avenues that you can that you can dive into and so grateful for that it's so rad so um i hope everybody as well enjoy this conversation with steve and uh hope you're sending it cheers Steve, thanks for coming on the podcast, man. Yeah, dude. Thanks for having me. I've wanted to do this one for a while for a lot of reasons. So I'm really stoked that we, we've lined up. But uh, of foiling, guys, you might be the other biggest F1 fan. <laughs> I'll take that title. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't. This is the first season that I've missed a race in, I think, about five seasons. This oh, wow. is boring me a little bit. How about you? I mean, you take out the the Max Verstappen Red Bull factor, and you have a pretty good pretty good race. But yeah, it's I don't know. It's been interesting seeing Max and Red Bull just walk away with the season. But the P two, P three, P four, there's been some pretty good pretty good battles. There has been, and it's been really interesting to watch how the upgrades have changed the field throughout the year. Right, a hundred percent. Like Aston Martin went from being like the next big thing to Tractor Martin at the end of the year. <laughs> <laughs> and now like McLaren's gotten fast. So it's, it's really cool to see. And like, even in qualifying, you know, the, 
the gaps between the top five, six cars have gotten down to like, what, a couple tenths? Like that's, that's exciting to me. Yep. Yep. It's amazing. And what I love about F1, I think there are so many parallels to foiling. I mean, obviously there's so much airfoil design in F1 and that's all of foiling, but it's also cool to see how like right now brands, it's like these little incremental changes. And then one brand kind of nudges ahead in a certain area. It's like the same things going on right now in, in formula one, like in, in a very quick iterative process. Right. Right. And I think that, you know, fundamentally it's the same principles that we're dealing with, you know, airflow and wing design and all this. And like, yeah, it's, it's cool to see, like draw parallels between, you know, what cars are doing and what we're doing in foils. Like, obviously it's, it's a little apples and oranges, but like the, the gains and just the progression through, through time and through development, how it, you know, improves and gets better. And like everyone gets, you know, faster, better, stronger. I think it's, it's really cool to see. Absolutely. All right. So let me learn a little bit about you before we go full foil brained here. What's your background? Okay. As far as like, what do you mean? I see you building out jet skis. I see you playing in AutoCAD. I know that you're a video <laughs> creator. You're like yeah, a yeah. man. Yeah. So I'm a mechanical engineer. I went to school for that. I started working in like automotive engineering. I was in Southern California for a little bit. I had a small company. We were designing and building camper vans. And that was what got me my, my springboard to be able to move out to Maui. I grew up in Des Moines, Iowa, so about as far away from ocean sports and all that stuff as, as you can get. And yeah, just, I don't know, perseverance, determination, and just wanting to be a part of this stuff for, for as long as I can remember is what I guess drove me to, to end up where I'm at now. When did you start your ocean sports lifestyle? My dad was really into windsurfing, like in the eighties. So that kind of like, I guess I grew up with it in a sense but not directly. Like we would travel and we'd come to Maui. And like, I remember being really young, like learning to windsurf out here. And I learned to kite when I was 10 in like 2002, I think. And that kind of opened up some doors to, to travel to some places and compete and whatnot. And then in Iowa, like in our inland lakes, I would be kiteboarding and like getting the cops called on me because nobody really understood or knew what I was doing like skipping class to go kiteboard. So that was, that was definitely something. And that was rough, man. Like the, the wind there would be really good in like April when like ice is breaking up on the rivers and stuff. So you're like putting on thick wetsuits or dry suits and trying to go kite. And it was, yeah, it was rough. So it definitely, you gain an appreciation for, I guess, being in Maui now where I go put on board shorts and a t-shirt and stumble down to the beach and go find something rad to get into. When did you pick up the foil? I think 2016 or 2017. I was in Los Angeles, actually down at Belmont Shores in Long Beach. And we were doing a lot of like freestyle kiting, you know, twin tip and that stuff. And I saw all these guys foiling down there. I'm like, holy crap, this is really cool. And then you can ride in such light wind. And being in California where the wind kind of sucks, that was like a huge draw for me. So I got like the, the OG slingshot hover glide foil like that green one mm -hmm. and learned on that. I took a, an old like skim surfboard that we built and just cut it down, drilled some holes through it and bolted the foil into it and just figured it out the hard way. And then not too long after I saw Kailani's video of him downwind foiling on that like 14 foot Nash standup. And so I was like, oh my God, you can, you can paddle these things. So I went and got one of those stick on foil plates 
and put my <laughs> slingshot hover glide like kite foil with like a three foot mast on this big like eight foot stand up paddleboard and went out and tried to paddle it and that was that was like a death machine i probably shouldn't have survived the way i did but man like i was able one time to actually get it to go and like i got up on foil and rode for probably like four feet and then just exploded it like got pounded into the beach break like it broke the the stick on foil plate ripped it off the board but like <laughs> just getting that little like two foot glide like i was hooked and i knew i wanted to like ride waves on a foil that's amazing. How funny were those stick-on plates? It was <laughs> the most ridiculous thing ever. But like, I don't know, I kind of joke, it was like the dark the dark ages of foiling. So like, it was cool because like nobody knew what worked and what didn't. So it was just this like, we'll throw pasta at the wall and see what sticks. And like, some stuff was really good and some stuff was really bad. But it, it was cool to just like, I don't know, try it and see and to like go through the development of the sport. Yeah, there should be like a test of what you can identify to figure out when you started foiling. And that would definitely be in there. For sure, for sure. You see some of like the old, those really curved masks from, what was that company? Like Carfino or something like that. There, there was some, some wild things out there. Yep, that's awesome. I learned on the Manta, the 84 Manta, the biggest thing you've ever seen. <laughs> just, oh yeah. Just a massive foil. Wow. Yeah. I wish I had a bigger foil when I learned. Oh no, this thing was so big. And I, I didn't realize that you should learn when, it, when it's small. So like I waited until a trip to Costa Rica to learn paddled out, you know, head high waves. <laughs> oh my gosh. I feel like everyone has that though. Like when we were trying to figure out before, like people have foiling dialed in, it was just like surfers, like just trying to see what worked and what didn't. So there was a lot of really bad board construction, a lot of really bad foil design, but it was like, just, I don't know, send it and see what happens. Yeah. I think that was so exciting too. just the unknown, the pace of evolution that, you know, it's still, we're still evolving at a quick clip, but you know, I don't think things will look drastically different in five years than they do today. Whereas five years ago to now it's a whole different world. Agreed. And I thought it was cool. You know, I saw it with kiteboarding like my very first kite was a two-line whippica like i got launched across the north shore of maui i was like 10 years old like 60 pounds dripping wet and just getting flinged across the ocean and then like you see you know the four-line kites and then being able to depower and like with the bow kites and having like actual sheeting it was really cool and then like you know the the sport started to like plateau in a sense where the development became smaller or like the the increments became less dramatic Yep. And then foiling came around and it was like, all of a sudden we're seeing these massive steps and just giant leaps in foil technology and performance in, you know, over like five, six years there. And then now it seems like we're still making gains for sure, but we're like the slope is flattening in a sense. Yep. We're into the, you know, 10th or hundredth of a second iteration improvement now. It, like right. It, right. Technology goes. Yeah. Which, I mean, I don't know. I think. I think it's cool. It's just like a different aspect of, of development. You know, I think making those huge leaps and bounds are, are really cool, but then there's also something that for me, I find really interesting about like, how do you squeeze another, you know, half a percent here and half a percent there, like trying to really tune the dials to get everything to perform as high as you can. Yeah, I completely agree. I, and I think that's one of the things that makes foiling. I was thinking, you know, ahead of this podcast, I, I also love to drive and, you know, people probably know, but I got before I found foiling, I got really into karting and did a couple of different like race leagues and stuff. And 
you know, it's all about, you know, the, the line and being on the margin. And it's, you know, you go from learning to drive and it being about being in the right spot by a foot or two until where you start getting better and you want to be within, within an inch and then, a, you know, a half an inch. And it's the same thing in foiling where I really appreciate the nuance and, you know, now it's about, you know, how much of your tip are you going to let come out on a turn versus, you know, just blindly throwing something. Yeah. I, I think it's really cool. I love the, like the, the incremental refinement, you know, that last, you know, 10th of a percent of performance. Oh, hundred percent. And I think there's something too with like the, the ability to share videos and photos that we have now versus, you know, 10 or 15 years ago that like, you know, you're looking on Instagram and you see someone just throw this insane turn and you're like, oh my God, I got to go learn how to do that. And then you run down to the beach and start trying to do it and do it. And then you get it. And then you post your clip. And then someone's like, oh, I got to, I got to beat that. And you get this like constant progression and people pushing each other from all around the world, right? Like virtually raising the bar outside of your local break. And like, I think it just, it, it elevates everyone together. Yeah. And you know, that's something I've been thinking about a lot lately too. And I, I think I talked about it maybe in one of the intros of the last podcast, but about, you know, pushing the bounds of what's possible of performance, but then figuring out where the sweet spot for experience is, because those two things can be opposed in, in opposition. And that's the one negative I feel like about the social medias is that it really drives, I mean, the algorithm likes the new thing that gets people to immediately interact and say, wow. And I, I wonder if collectively that pushes everyone to optimize for more for the moment instead of the experience. And I'm trying to be very conscious right now about optimizing for the experience. Yeah, I think there's, you know, it's just however you want to, however deep you want to get into your, your algorithm or how, I guess, seriously you want to take it in a sense. If you just like posting silly videos of crashing on foils and like, just go out and send it, you know? And then if you're really trying to like, I don't know, make the next big viral clip that I think that can get like tedious in a sense, or like it lives in your head a little too much. It takes away from, from your time in the water and like really what we're trying to do out there. Well, I think it's actually inverse to that. I think it's more about you are only seeing the people who are doing the uh, outrageous good or crazy. And so you start to get a false understanding of, of what's happening out in the world. You know, it's just like, it's this filter that's only optimized to show you, you know, the extreme. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's true. And like trying to drive engagement and keep you looking at your, at right. your magical square for as long as possible. Yep. <laughs> but I do think that social has been a net positive for foiling, especially on the development uh, and evolution of both gear and riding. Right, right. I think you get a lot of people just bouncing ideas and bouncing concepts. And I think you just put enough people's heads together and you can make some pretty, pretty amazing stuff. Absolutely. All right, let's talk about what you like to ride, not as far as like gear, but as far as conditions. What, what, yeah. what are you the most excited about foiling right now? Oh, I guess right now being October, almost November here in Maui, big waves. That's like, what's really, you know, feeling my fire. I like to just try and ride the biggest stuff I can on a foil. It's been a really interesting endeavor, I guess, to try to ride 
bigger waves on a foil because there's just weird stuff that happens when you get going really fast on a pretty heavy wave and trying to like unlock that has just been like a new level of difficulty and like engineering and design that is like not super tapped into i've tried some pretty crazy looking foils like ones that look almost symmetrical tail wing to front wing different stuff with mass and the just the physics and everything get crazy so yeah that's been like my immediate drive or immediate attention thing Let's pull on that thread for a little bit, because that's something where there's not a lot of folks who are pushing the limit in those areas. And then the subset of those folks who also have the mechanical engineering background that you have, you're in like a, a very small <laughs> Venn diagram right now to, to, to actually dive into the nuance. What what correlations have you found in foils, you know, front versus tail or foil sections that makes something go great in big surf? What surprised you? What surprised you on the opposite side? Something that's gone gone really shit. Yeah, so I think, and you know, I'm not an awesome like foil designer. Yeah, you know, I talked to Kane a lot about this stuff and he has some really good ideas and just really understanding of like what's actually happening down there. But what I've found is that like the bigger the wave gets, generally the more stability I want. There's almost like a like an inverse parabola or whatever of how much stability I want relative to wave size. So when it gets that, like, you know, double overhead plus, I really prefer more stability over like freedom and, and that loose feeling. And a lot of that is just because the speed you're traveling, you know, you're going 30, 40 miles an hour down the face of the wave. So every little change in pitch and roll, it happens so fast that if I can slow that down a little bit, then I have a lot more control and I have a lot more success. Masks have been huge. So having like the right taper, the right section, the right stiffness has really been a big thing for, for making it or missing it. If your mass is too locked in, you just get stuck on one line. And if you're too deep or you, you can't get to the shoulder or whatever, then you just get blown up because you can't change off of that line when you're in the wave. And on the other side, if it's too squirrely, then you're just like, trying to hold it together and survive. So trying to find that sweet spot of like stability, control, and speed has been the like the magical trifecta to figure out. And and I feel like it's such a small subsect of foiling in general that like getting people and designers to like make big wave foils is is really hard because they're like, well, well, why? Because nobody wants to buy them, I guess. But I think there's things to to develop from it, you know, like even like downwind foiling or consider it like a an apex sport, you know, going back to Formula One, like a lot of technology starts in those really niche apex sports and then like trickles down into the wider design and the bigger design concept. You know, like in cars, you know, a lot of the the hybrid engines, those started with turbo hybrid Formula One engines. Yep. And eventually they trickled down into your the car that we're driving every day. So I think there's some stuff to gain there, but exactly what it is, like I'm not, I'm not a good enough designer to really know. What what masts do you like at those speeds? Do you know how fast you're going? Do you have an yeah. accurate way to measure it? Not super accurate. I've used like the GoPro speedometer or whatever. Mm-hmm. So that's close enough. I've also tried like Apple Watch and stuff, but between like 29 and 40. Is I think the fastest I've gotten was about was like 40 or 41. And that was terrifying. 
<laughs> that's really fast i would say average like on a solid like you know i don't know, like 15 foot day you're probably going like low 30s it's like your average yeah 33 ish yeah and that's oh. even very scary very scary like you feel it when you fall however many skips across the water that kind of tells you how fast you're going yeah we used to we used to wakeboard behind a buddy's boat he had like this don his dad had this donzy ski boat when we were in you know high school and we'd always end the day with just seeing who could go the fastest and those wipeouts were so brutal you know 35 40 miles an hour and coming off yeah water becomes very hard very quick when you're going that fast yeah it does yeah i've never experienced that on foil i don't think i don't know if i want to if i'm being honest it's it's interesting like i think it's super fun but like there's there's also a point where it's like is this really what what we should be doing with the foils and i and i like that i like taking something that's not meant to do something and then going and making it do it mm -hmm. like for example the other day i took my progression 125 towing and like overhead surf yep and it was it was actually <laughs> like really fun yeah, I know you ask anyone, they're like, oh, like that's that's not what that foil is made for. I'm like, well, yeah, I know, but like I just want to see can it do it? Like, where where is the limit for it outside of the design? How did it was actually really fun? Like I was riding at negative 0.5 shim with okay. the 13.5 tail. The progression tail? Yeah, the progression 13.5 tail, negative a half degree, the 125 front wing. Nice. And it was it was cool. Like when it was in the pocket, it was a little hard to turn just because it was going so fast that like I couldn't get the wingtip down. Right. But I could run it out to the shoulder and just have these big cutbacks like right up into the foam and into the pocket and like come back off the lip and just surf it more like shoulder to pocket instead of vertically. And it was it was a ton of fun actually for like doing something that the foil really isn't designed to do. Yeah. That's, that's been really fun. Like when I'm in big surf on the 120, and actually I don't ride the 125 anymore in big surf because we have something we're working on. But the, I don't know if I should say that or not. Well, <laughs> we can cut that in post. <laughs> yeah. um, I just end up like drawing stuff way out into the flats and you can feel when that speed gets to the, okay, I can, I can lean it over now speed. Um, exactly. And like just trying to feel where that is. Because you know, all the progression stuff is still really new to me. You know, I've only been on it for about three weeks now. So just trying to find you know, what, what can and can't it do. And like, yeah, you can look at something and be like, okay, I can tell there's an obvious design area that this was intended for. But I like to throw that out the window and just see like, how far can I push it or how, how fast can it go? And like, what does it do? Because I think it just, I don't know, one, I just want to know, just personal curiosity. And then two, I think you can draw parallels for future designs or other concepts or like, I felt this, this felt really good. And then you try a different foil and you're like, oh, well, we could add this feeling into that foil and you end up with like a pretty, pretty great design. Yep. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I feel like out there, it's probably more of a downwind foil than a surf foil, at least if the surf's good. Yeah, so I've been downwinding the 125 for the surf. I Actually, the 125 is what I'm spending the most of my time on right now. The 140 is fun when it's like really small, but mm -hmm. we just have so much power in the waves here that most of the time, like I just don't need it. And then feeling the the pump difference between them is crazy. Like I feel like I could pump the 125 almost farther than I can the 140, just like keeping that speed and like the 
the glide slope on it or whatever. Like, I don't know. I think also it's just time on the foil. I've spent more time on the 125 than anything. So I feel the most dialed on that one. I agree with you there. I I think it's all about exit speed here. I pick the 125 on any day where I'll be exiting a wave in that like 15 mile an hour range because it's so easy to keep it there. But on our smaller days when you're like, I'm a bigger guy too, like a buck 85 now down eight, nine pounds. But when I'm exiting slow, it's a lot of cardio to get it to its cruising speed. And then that's when I'll take the 140 or and I spent a lot of time on the 170 and 200 too because I just like cruising but yeah um, and that's that's what I've found just in my my experimenting too you know, I'm 180 pounds so I'm right there with you that yeah when when I can get speed the 125 is like my go-to choice and then if it's something where I'm gonna have to like work it a little more then I've been throwing on the 140 and having a little more success there right on Let, let's Go into masts real quick because I'm still intrigued by what you said there about masts locking you in. What masts lock you in? What masts are the best that you found in big surf? A lot of the stuff I've been riding or like was riding last year, it was all like prototype one-off stuff. But so, you know, I don't really know exactly what the, the design characteristics or foil sections were, but there was just like a point where I could feel where the mast was holding everything really vertically. And like, I couldn't get it to yaw in the water at all. And what it did was it was just like, whatever your line was, that's where you're going. You know, once you got above a speed, it was just, everything was so like locked in, in a straight line that even to turn it was like almost impossible. And then other masks that we tried, like they were, I don't know if it was, I don't think it was flex in the mask because they felt stiff. I think it was more just like, the section and how it was holding speed and how the water was, you know, tracking around it, but they didn't have that control and they would, you know, maybe get a little ventilation behind the mass there. I, I don't really know what what's happening, but like I could ride a mass and be like, okay, this one was, this one was too stiff or this one was too tracky. I guess not stiff, but like it went straight too much and this one turned too much. So trying to find the in-between and, and speed was a big part of that too. You know, you can have one setup where it works really good going over 30 and it like doesn't ride at all if you're under 30. And then another one that's like kind of floats around 30, but then it goes too fast and you blow up and too, blo- too slow and you blow up. So it seems like you're working in these like pretty fine margins. Yeah. What size foil are you on mostly when you're in that big a surf? Uh, I've been pushing the Viper 90 in it. Last year I was riding mostly like 500 to 700 square centimeter stuff. Mm-hmm. So in that range. And Steve, feel free to talk about, you know, all brands. Yeah, yeah, no, the, the stuff that we were trying in, in bigger surf, it was all prototypes from the hydrofoil company. Okay. So a lot of, a lot of it was just one-off stuff, just trying to see what, what works and what doesn't. And that was some, a lot of it worked really well. And then a lot of things they just didn't. So on these days, this is going to be a good segue here on these days, you are on a jet ski and that's one of my favorite reasons to follow you on Instagram you know, going back a couple of years now, probably is your jet ski mods, your upgrades for heavy water. Can you talk through the process, what you recommend on a ski to get it ready for heavy water? And this is me asking the question, a guy who has absolutely nothing on our ski. We, we just rock a Sea-Doo GTX 155 stock. Nice. Yeah. There's a lot that we do to these skis. If you just look at the skis that are in the water, they just, they look almost like small boats. 
So the, the most obvious one is the inflatable collar around the perimeter of the ski. That's one that I started running it a couple of years ago. And it's like a game changer for how the ski operates, the safety, the stability, like the dryness of the ride. You're not getting soaked the whole time. When we're in really big surf, one of the things that like you don't really see for it is when there's a lot of air in the water, the jet ski sits really low. It sinks because the air is, or the water is like full of air, you know, the density drops. Mm -hmm. And what that collar does is it holds your ski up a little more. So your water's not coming over your gunnels. The ski sits a little higher and it helps it take off because a lot of times when there's so much air in the water, the ski's just cavitating. It's like spinning its wheels. There's, there's no grip. Right. So that collar helps it get up and get moving. And then it's also just like the safety function of it. Like you're coming in to pick someone up. It's, it's nice to have a, a big air bladder in front of you instead of like hard fiberglass, just in case, you know, you come in a little hot and like bump them or something. So yeah, the collars are huge. The, the traction that we put all around the gunnels and the sidewalls, that's just functionality. You know, you're putting boards in there. It keeps your boards from getting bashed up. It gives you more places to stand on the machine. Just, I don't know. It's nice to have grip. And then obviously the rescue sleds, you really, if you're towing without a sled, like that's in my opinion, it's pretty dangerous. You just don't have that functionality. You don't have anywhere to put a person when you're trying to pick them up in between waves. And then just with the foils too, like having a, a little workbench to work off of back there is really nice. It makes testing and prototyping much easier because you can pull your foil all apart on the sled and you're like, you're not too worried about dropping stuff and you have just like a stable work platform. And then I guess one thing that's a little less seen in them is we're doing different things with impellers, different pitches. Some people are running like dual impellers, where it's like a, a small impeller in front of the big impeller. And all that is designed again, going back to like the white water and the cavitation, just getting that ski moving when there's a really low density fluid moving through it. It's, it's surprisingly hard. Yeah, that's the collar is something I definitely would like to do to our ski. I think that from a safety aspect, it makes a lot of sense, you know, inadvertently hitting somebody, you're not going to knock them out. I really like that idea. I wonder how much of the other, like the bigger cavitation is not something that I could think we're feeling as much over here. I mean, when we're towing, it's usually pretty clean water. We're out at a shoal way offshore. And it's only a couple times a year when it's, when it's, I'd say it's big and not big by your standards in any means. Yeah. And if you, if you're not having those conditions and like doing stuff with the intakes and the impellers, like it's really just not worth it. Like the stock stuff is good enough. Mm -hmm. Really the only point that I notice it is like when we get into like, yeah, like big surf and there's just a bunch of foam where the ocean is just white and soupy and there's just nothing and you go to pull on the throttle and the, the rpms just shoot way up and your ski goes nowhere and then you're trying to like pump the throttle to to get the ski to go and you're just bumping revs and your ski's still not moving and there's a wave running you down and it's that's like not a fun spot to be in so if you can make mechanical changes to to reduce the number of times that that happens or to get you moving just a half a second quicker like that can be the difference in in getting your pickup or getting cleaned up that makes a ton of sense, especially what y'all are doing, the limits. Um, and being out there on Maui, you get to see the world's best watermen in some of the heaviest conditions in the world. Th that's got to be amazing as well. Oh, it's it's incredible. You know, like I think that 
not to like get this East Coast, West Coast thing going on, but I think that in, in Hawaii in a region, I don't know if there's anywhere else on the planet that has such a concentration of incredibly skilled top level riders across so many disciplines. You know, we have world-class surfers, world-class windsurfers, world-class kiters, world-class foilers. It's like just the, the bar here in your average lineup or any day in the beach is so high that like you can just sit and watch people and you're going to find someone who's just ripping so hard. It's, it's really cool to be around. It's kind of like if you, you know, you surround yourself in that environment and just like live in it that I think it, it elevates you and then it elevates the people around you. And it's just such a, a cool thing to be around and to like share with and also just like really good people, really nice people that rip super hard. It's like, what, what more could you ask for? Yeah. You know, in thinking about that, one of my favorite things, and I guess got to experience this in Hood River, is I feel like watching someone at you know top level live, you get to pull out so much. And and generally, you know, I got to watch Nathan Van Buren and Kiahi and you know Josh Koo, all these guys while we were out in Hood River in downwinding, and I came away with little tidbits from each one of those guys of things that I have now started to incorporate into my foiling and into my downwinding anyways. Um, when you are watching, I know you spend a lot of time with Kane, towing with Kane, and I'm sure that you get to spend a lot of time with the other guys. What are you pulling? If you could talk through a couple of those guys, maybe start with Kane. What do you pull out? And you're like, boy, I'd love to incorporate that into my foiling, maybe an approach or um, a specific turn, something like that. Yeah, I guess... Um... Well, the one thing I try to get out of Kane is like, what's in his head, right? The kid is so smart <laughs> and like, just so tuned in that like, if I have some gear that like, I don't know how I want to set it up or it's not really fitting right with me. Like I'll go out with Kane in 30 minutes. I'm like dialed, you know? So he's just so good at knowing what all the pieces of the puzzle do. And that's like, that's insane right there. Right. As far as riding, like just the way he turns is on another level how he gets the foil to roll through his bottom turn and then through his top turn, just like the smoothness and flow is like really something that I try to pull pieces from that. That's one, like doing whenever I watch Kai ride, like his aggressiveness and like how he generates speed and pop and like just throws the foil around like that to me is just, it's like acrobatics on a surfboard with a sword underneath you, you know, like it's, it's amazing. So just trying to find little things that he's doing, like that's really cool to try to watch and pull from. Yeah, everyone has their own style and their own thing that they do that like is really unique to watch. And just, you can find little pieces of how they turn, how they pump, where they're riding on their mass that like, and I try to take a little bit from everyone and try to cobble together something that looks like decent foiling. And, uh, you know, sometimes it works and other times it doesn't. When you look at the field, like one of the things that I always used to say in coaching is you need to be very careful about who you're picking for your mental representations. And the idea of mental representation is, you know, your ideal of a specific maneuver sequence of motion. And you have to be careful to pick someone who you're going to use to model based on, you know, body type and, you know, kind of like native movement. Who, who do you resonate with the most as far as foil style? Yeah, that's a hard one. It's something I've struggled with my whole life just for that reason right there of like body type. You know, I'm six, four and some change, 180 pounds. Like I'm a weird cartoon character looking dude. You know, there's not a lot of guys that are, that are built like me. 
so trying to find like like a style or, or like maneuvers that like people who are a foot shorter than me they're like throwing crazy 360 backflips it's like well yeah because your axis of rotation is so much smaller and more compact that like it's i struggle to do those things so i've had to like figure out my own way of doing stuff and then like when someone asks like oh how do you do that like i'd have a really hard time at at explaining it because what works for me doesn't work for for a lot of people so i guess just trying to i try to find something that like i watch it and i'm like that looks like good surfing you know and like like adam bennett's you know i look at his foiling i'm like that looks like really good foiling to me so i try to like just see how he's positioning the foil in the waves how he's making the turn and then try to do my best to attempt to emulate it or what i think looks like emulating it and then you know you go back and watch your footage and it's like what what was i doing there what was that that wasn't even close <laughs> so you referenced what well, you know who might be a good guy for you to to jam with would be jeremy yeah um, like yeah he's a big dude too yeah yep and man i like when he was out here for maui or for, for downwind season it was really cool to like watch him ride and just see how fast he is like as a big guy man the guy rips so hard yeah, we got to share some glides and hood, and it was very cool. I didn't realize he's a big dude. Didn't realize kind of like, and I like that just because like, you know, I've always been big for a surfer, and you know, Jordy was always one of my favorite surfers just because he was <laughs> big. Right, right, right. Yeah, he's a big dude, and man, he generates so much power in his surfing. Mm-hmm. And that's something that frustrates me about foiling, is that I was a decent surfer i wouldn't say that i was a great surfer in any way but i could do some big frontside hacks and i could move a lot of water and i feel like i'm doing really hard turns on foil i wish that you could show how much water should be coming off the foil to give a gauge of how hard you're turning sometimes oh i know right it's like yeah you talk about throwing buckets on surfboards but it's like you're throwing cups on the foil yeah you're creating a wake i look at the wake exactly yeah (laughs) got that whole like fish hook looking trough yeah and you but man some guys are able to throw like pretty pretty gnarly slashes off the lip and like Mm -hmm. for a foil move a lot of water it's pretty impressive yeah it'll never be like surf impressive though we should know what we should do i just watched the blue angels this last week we should get uh smoke trails or something like that like little jet water things that like shoot off the back that would be sick (laughs) <laughs> like the visibility spouts on the wave runners. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Let's jam on downwinding for a little bit, man. Yeah. How long have you been? I mean, actually, I want to go back to something you said at the beginning that I think is pretty incredible. I just want to clarify this. Were you foiling before Kai's original video came out? I was kite foiling. Okay. Uh, I wasn't surf foiling or doing any paddle stuff. Gotcha. Okay. And then, Uh, yeah, it was when I saw that video that I was like, oh, damn, you can, you can paddle these things. Like, okay, let's go try it. (laughs) All right. So, so moving into, to downwinding a little bit, I see most of the time you're riding KT boards. Are you, you on the dragonfly, the new line of dragonfly a lot? Yep. So I'm riding the board I'm on. It's, it's dragonfly base and then has a few custom tweaks to it. So it's basically a, a tuned up dragonfly. What'd you do to tune it up? It has a pretty much round bottom and the Y point is further back. 
So it's like the shoulders of the board and into the nose is very narrow. Mm-hmm. And then the width is more towards like the, the hips or the waist of the board. And, you know, it's really funny when you know, I downwind with, you know, Kane and all those uh, guys a lot. Last year was like my first year that I was like really hardcore into downwinding and going all the time. And we used to just in the drive back and forth, we would just like talk about board shapes and like, oh, what about this? What about that? And we've been talking about this like OC1 looking round hole bottom downwind board that should paddle like insane. And we just, you know, never built it. And then when Kane started working for KT, one of his like very early concept designs that he did was like exactly what we talked about. So, you know, and I, I called up Keith, I was like, Hey, like, can I come in and, and let's do a board? And he's like, Oh, check, check this one out that, that Kane drew up. And I was like, this is exactly the board we've been talking about for a year. Like, let's go cut it, glass it. Let's get this thing wet. So it, yeah, it's, a, and it's all, it's all based out of that dragonfly DNA. The, the core is there. And then just has some of those, like the, the real rounded aggressive nose shape that, that we, I guess, theorized in the car for a year. And it was really fun to get on it and like actually feel it out and see what it did and didn't do. That's, that's a good story. It looks like you're on a shorter board than a lot of guys are riding. What are your dims? I'm riding 80 by 18. It's all smoke and mirrors, man. That's that board's long and narrow. That's the white one. Yep. The white one. It's crazy. It doesn't look that big, at least in the picks. It doesn't ride that big either. That was the biggest thing that like tripped me out. The board rides on foil, probably like mid six, mid to small six. Like I don't feel like I'm swinging an eight foot board. And I think a lot of that is by having the wide point further back and really tapering out the nose and having a real aggressive front end on the board that it, it takes a lot of that volume and bulk away from, from the foil and pushes it back towards the mass. Yep. So like, you know, I'm, I'm reducing that lever, reducing the swinging moment around the mast and uh, yeah, it, it rides great. You know, I think that dimensions make a lot of sense. Like physical dimensions make a lot of sense for a surfboard. I do not believe they do for foil boards and I'm trying to reshape like the collective, like thought process for, for dimensions into swing weight, touch points and angles. Okay. But uh, yeah, once you get it, you can, you can have the feeling of being on something much smaller with the advantages of being on something bigger. Right. And I think there's been like two parallel developments that have started to converge with, with the downwind boards and like the long and narrow concept. I think the foil development, Mm -hmm. like three, four years ago, it was like an arms race. What I think we've seen is like two parallel developments between foils and boards. Like three years ago, it was this arms race to go shorter. Everyone's riding 311, 310. And on these like real, you know, low aspect surfy foils. And now that our foils have gotten, I guess, a little more higher aspect and more efficient, that now we need a board to match the efficiency of that foil. Mm-hmm. And then people are figuring out, oh, we can, if we can get into a wave way early, we get longer rides, we get better rides. With the Veracuda, like I think it it was a proving point where long and narrow can be more efficient than short and fat. Mm-hmm. And having a foil to match that, like they go hand in hand or they pair together. Is there a place where you think something is too narrow for the ease of surfing with being able to be somewhat offset and like the surf feel? Oh yeah. I mean, like if you have bigger feet, then yeah, you can be too narrow and then your toes are hanging off the rail of the board, which is like uncomfortable. There, There is a point where I think you're too narrow. 
so I think everyone's different, right? Everyone has their own dimensions and they got to figure out what works best for them. But I think that we can go narrower than what we're seeing is my thought. I think it matters what width, like what foil you're riding as well. Like I don't mind being pretty narrow on the 125 or, you know, something surfy smaller. But once I get up to like a 170 or the 200, I almost want almost 20 inches wide, you know, 19, 20, because that allows me to, to crank the foil, to put enough leverage on it. Totally. And I think something that is easy to overlook or forget about is like the, the conditions we're riding here in Hawaii are so niche and so specific compared to pretty much everywhere else in the world that like what we're riding here is not going to be super fun to go ride in, in Florida or hood river or Southern California and vice versa. You know? So I think that there's like regional design principles that if you really want to dial in your board, like you got to build a board for your local conditions. You can't just go copy what people are doing in Hawaii and take it to Florida and expect it to be awesome. You know, I think that there, and you know, I can't take something from Florida and just go drop it in in Hawaii and expect it to rip. Like, I think there's things you need to tune and dial in for your, for your local conditions to, to optimize everything. Absolutely. That's something that we found early on just with, you know, in downwinding, especially with how t tight our bumps are on certain days, you know, boards over eight feet or on two bumps at the same time. <laughs> oh, know? totally. And I, I get it. Like, it makes sense. Like our South shore run here in Kihei, the bumps are like that. They're a lot tighter together. They're not those real big open ocean swells. And even like on an eight foot board, you're taking a super steep angle at the top to get going because like your, your board is spanning across two or three bumps. Yeah. But it was funny seeing like, you know, in the last race season, people coming from all over the world with their downwind boards. And they were like, a lot of people were in the mid six or even up to seven foot. And they go out in like three runs later, they're like on Craigslist trying to buy boards for, for Maui for the Maliko run. And like everyone that's, that lives here is all on, you know, eight foot plus boards and like smoking them. And then they're like, oh my God, like this, this board that was awesome back home. It just doesn't keep up for, for these conditions. And I think if I took a Maliko board to, to hood river, like, yeah, it would work, but I think I would have a lot more fun on like a seven foot or a six, six. Yeah. And with hood, you can get away with kind of anything. I feel like it's amazing. Oh, it looks so good. I've never been, but I've seen, you know, a lot of videos and just like the, the, the surfiness of it looks so fun and like those steep bumps. And there's so many of them that you can just, it's like, you're really throwing hard turns and surfing the whole time. I was just talking to TJ this morning, actually, and apparently it just got cold. It's like full on winter now. What are you saying? But the, the day before the weather switched, it was like one of the better days of the year. 45, they did like 30 miles on foil. Wow. Uh, just And they knew it was coming, so they just sent all day long. <laughs> That's sick. Yeah, when, and there, you know, you got to get it while it's good, right? Yeah, seasonally. That's epic. What are your goals in foiling? to do it as long as I can. <laughs> How do you optimize for that? A lot of training, man. Like, you know, I, I just turned, well, I turned 31 in July. <laughs> and got so it, go, brother. I got a long road. Oh, for sure. But it's just funny. Like the, you know, when I was 22, it was like, I would, you know, you go out and do shenanigans and get up in the morning and you just go and perform, you know, it's just your body just works. Everything works good. And now like, you know, as I'm into my early thirties, I'm spending more time 
stretching, more time doing yoga, more time in the gym, lifting weights. I live by the ice bath. Like my recovery has just gotten a lot more, I guess, rounded out or fleshed out compared to what it used to be as well as my training and kind of a lot of that ties into like, just, I guess, goals of staying in the game for as long as I can. Like, you know, I'm trying to foil big waves. Like there's obviously a, a heavy training routine that has to go parallel with that. So you don't die. And just, I don't know, being, I guess, moderately relevant in a sense of, you know, I can still go out and do the things I want to do and, and participate in the activities I, I want to do. And it's just, you know, putting more time in, in dry land training or out of the water so that when I'm in the water, I can stay, stay dialed in and just stay, stay in it. What dry land training has correlated to improve performance in the water for you the most, like highest correlation? Strength training and cardio, you know, just really building up my, my cardio conditioning. What do you That's do? Been, I do like running and biking. Then we'll do like some, some pool workouts, you know, swimming with weights, breath work training, stuff like that. But that's, that's mostly it. Like I probably don't have as like solid of a routine as I could, but I figure you know, something's better than nothing. Yeah. I've been trying to do a lot of zone two cardio. I feel like foiling gives me a lot of, you know, upper, upper level, level high cardio. Yeah. Um, and so I've been trying to do at least four or five times a week you know, at least 30 minutes of like 120 heart rate. I don't yeah, know. I've been, yeah. I know what you're talking about. Like I've been playing with like percent max heart rate training. It sucks. <laughs> it, it sucks to do. Uh, I have to really force myself to do it. Um, and like on top of that, I've been like trying to build up to a percent max heart rate and then do like breath holds on top of that. It's like just trying to hold your breath for 30 seconds when you're at 80% max heart rate. That's, that gets really hard really quick. Yep. I used to do that a lot. You know, I was like growing up in Florida, you know, I actually had a really terrible experience in the surf when I was like 16, where I basically felt like I passed out underwater and it was on a trip to Costa Rica to like a heavier wave, Playa Hermosa and always leery of bigger surf. But then I wanted to take it on when we moved to Central America. And so I figured the best way to do that was to, to train and just know that I could handle any situation. And so I started doing like interval breath holds at high heart rates, like riding the bike, things like that. And it was actually one day I, I had this crazy experience where I was holding my breath for, I think it was, I had moved up. So like keeping heart rate at like 135, 140, and then holding your breath for increasing from like a 15 seconds of a minute up to like, you know, 30 seconds, like, you know, 30 second hold, 30 second breathing for 10 minutes. And I'd been working up to that over like a month or two. And man, it was so crazy. Cause I don't know if I was just a little bit more tired this one day, you know, breath hold four was starting to hurt five was getting worse. Six was like, Oh my God, this is like, I'm never going to get through this thing. And then on seven at about 15 seconds in, cause you only get 30 seconds to recover every time. It was hurting, hurting, hurting. And then all of a sudden, I just felt fantastic. I was like, okay, wow. I got this. So I just kept riding. And then all of a sudden, like the world fell out. You know, the black circle came in yep. as fast as anything. Like it happened instantly. So I learned that, you know, as soon as you start feeling really good, be careful. Like, I think I probably had like seven or eight seconds after that, like euphoric, like I'm great feeling. I've got this to where it was just over. If you were underwater, it would be over. 
Yeah. And, you know, I've done a little bit of free dive training, like free divers. Those are the, the experts in, in apnea and like what your body's doing when you're deprived of oxygen and how to manage that. And that was one of the big things that they talked about was like, it, it, when it stops becoming difficult, like that's when, you know, you're, you're on the precipice of a blackout. And that's something that like, I, that feeling is always in the back of my head. I've never actually blacked out underwater, but I've come close. And like, just knowing, I think doing that in like a controlled environment is really important. So then that way, you know what it feels like, and then you can know if you're underwater, like what's happening and, and what's going to come next. And I think all that's like a, an element of having a, a robust safety plan is what am I going to do if this happens? How do we deal with this? What steps do we take? And I guess just, you know, the, the farther that you push your body in, in the sport, like the more time you need to spend talking about safety and, and training and preparing for that and knowing what's going to happen, when's it going to happen and how do we deal with it? Yep. No, I agree. I got really into free dive spear diving while we lived in Costa Rica. And it was actually the one sport that I really loved that I made myself stop because I get so into wanting to push things and I just pushed it a couple times farther than I wanted to. And just decided there are things that I love so much that I just, that was not it for me. Totally. Uh, and it gets, it gets really real, really quick. Yeah. Yeah. I followed one fish down, you know, past a point where I should have. And then that was like, you know, I'm pretty good about decision-making like that. I feel like, and somehow I just got caught up in something and, you know, went, went farther than I should have. And, and like thought about it for like a week or two. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to stay on the reefs inside from now on. But I mean, at least you have the the capacity to have that conversation with yourself and like the, you know, the realization that, Hey, this is, this is not worth it anymore for me. A lot of people don't. Yep. I feel like that's a thing that happens, you know, with like flow state addiction is people to get the same level have to push harder and harder and harder, farther and farther. And you start going from a place that's acceptable risk to unacceptable risk but it's the only way that folks feel like they can get that feeling. And so you have a blind spot to the amount of risk that you start to put yourself in. Yeah. I think one of the things that really stuck with me that I've been told from a lot of different, very experienced watermen and women is like not being a risk taker, but being a risk technician. And, you know, it's something that's, that's preached in the brag course, the big wave risk assessment group training course. And I've been also been taught that from a lot of lifeguards and just really experienced people in the water. And like, I think it's a really interesting concept of how do you go from being a risk taker to being a risk technician? Like, how do you manage those risks with a, a level of safety that's like equivalent or greater than the risk, you know, because inherently what we're doing is dangerous. I think foiling, I think surfing 50 foot waves is dangerous. I think foiling two foot waves has potential to be dangerous. You know, like there's always something that can happen, but just what you're doing and how you're preparing for those circumstances and how you, you know, how you rise to that level of risk is what either makes or breaks someone for being, I don't want to say safe, but like, you know, being as safe as they can be. What safety protocols do you have towing bigger surf? The biggest one I think is just experience. You know, there's, when it gets to a certain threshold, like there's, only a small number of people that like I'll go out with and they're people that I know have put in the time and effort and training that I have to 
to help each other out. You know, I know that they have the time on the ski that if we go down, they're going to come get me. I know that they have the time thinking and practicing the first aid that if, if I'm hurt or something happens, they'll be able to get me to a higher level of care and they're going to make decisions that are smart and safe and going to help, you know, us as a team get in and out. We do carry first aid gear on the ski. You know, I have a tourniquet strapped to my handlebars. It's right there in front of the driver. So there's little things like that, just having the tools and resources readily available. And also just the time training, you know, going out in flat water and practicing pickups, doing timed pickups, you know, unconscious rider pickups, making sure that our muscle memory and our time on the, on the machine and our equipment is so dialed in, in flat water conditions that when it does get big, we're just going through the motions, you know, we're not having to stop and wait and think and make all these decisions. We're just acting and reacting to the situation. Yeah. Who are your favorite people to tow with? Well, I have one of my buddies, Casey, he's super fun to tow with. He's gotten really into it this year. Kane is really fun to tow with. I've towed with Kai a couple of times. That's a trip. The guy's just an animal. He's so just on such another level. I feel like every time I go out with them, like I might, I level up a bar or two. And then there's just, I don't know, there's a lot of really good foilers in Maui that just are frothers and love to go. Sad, really anyone that wants to get on the water. I love it. I feel like that's, I feel like we've got a kind of a, a great foil community here, but it's so small compared to what you guys have out there. And then the, the different conditions, just amazing. Yeah. I think that's, what's cool about foiling is like just the community aspect of it. Like, you know, everyone learned within the last 10 years, pretty much, you know, like nobody's been foiling for 25 years or whatever. So everyone has that like experience of being new and learning and like being a kook, like pretty fresh in their brain. So it's like, there's, I don't know, this ego or whatever that comes with surfing that I feel like doesn't really hit foiling as hard. And just, I don't know, the it feels like foilers are like stoked to share stuff. Like they don't want to gatekeep as much or it's like, here's what I'm writing. Here's how I'm doing it. Like, what do you have? And like, people are really sharing a lot of collaboration, just super friendly in the water. My, my experiences foiling have been a lot more fun than, than surfing. How do they compare to your experience windsurfing? I stopped windsurfing when I was really young because like when kiting came around, I was like, oh man, I can ditch this gigantic sailing board for a wakeboard and a backpack. But even, you know, kiting was pretty mellow more or less just because you're like finding your own space. There was always clash between like windsurfers and kiters or windsurfers and surfers, kiters and surfers, just like. I don't know if you have more fun than someone else and they get mad. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like everywhere, you know, there's friction between groups and organizations, but I don't really play into it or let it get to me. Like I, I've always liked stuff where I can go find my own spot, find my own space, ride my own waves. If there's a handful of people there that are like stoked and frothing and just having a good time and we can all, you know, share waves together. Like I'm all for that. I'm, I'm not like, no, oh, this is my spot and I'm king of the hill here. Like, I think that's silly. I don't. I don't have time for that. I love that. So what are we going to dive into now? The you know, something I was going to ask is your, your board construction. I know you guys have been building boards. I know a lot of this is getting a little, maybe a little taboo top secret, but like, what are you guys doing with your board construction? So there's, I can't talk about the box stuff. That's Pedigo figured it out. Yep. And that's the only thing I can't talk about, but I think a big secret is that we use Marco foam and we 
use partial stringers. That's stuff I nice. can't talk about. And uh, the stringer gives you so much. I mean, really the stiffness that you need is, is, you know, zero flex for pumping. And then with Marco foam, Marco foam is just so good. I was actually just talking to TJ about this a little while ago. It's, you know, I did a lot of board building in sup surfing before foiling and there, you know, it's generally like stringerless boards and you want to go as light as possible for, you know, high performance sup surfing. And so I tested so much foam and Marco was so much better in EPS than everything else. I don't really play in, in poly too much. Mm-hmm. Um, that with with that combo of the partial stringer and the some of our small models have full stringers, but and the and the Marco foam, you can get away with glassing lighter. And that's how you know Mike's getting boards. He he's put together the whole my addition was just getting us onto Marco. And then pretty much everything else in the glassing has been his. And oh, nice. you know, our prone stuff comes out like four and a half pounds for you know, four, five, 28 liter board finished. Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah. Are you and doing it, like vacuum bagging and infusion and stuff or wet lambs? No, just, just, just regular layups. Wow. That's really good. Yeah. Um, and, and we've yet to uh, knock on wood. I don't think we've had a box break yet. So. Oh, that's great. It yeah. took me about a year and a half to figure out how to set a box that wouldn't break. <laughs> <laughs> Is it proprietary? I, I, I don't think so. I, like I was just buying foam from foam.co.uk or whatever and just bringing in different densities and playing around with like different reinforcement patterns in the fin box and like figuring out where the load is in the box and like how can i distribute that load and not put a ton of weight in the board yeah now i was starting out with just like like just big blocks of eight pound divinacell closed cell foam gotcha and just like dropping in a solid block in there and then putting tracks in that yeah and like that that worked well and like one of the boards i still ride i've rode it for two years is good but like it has some weight to it so i was like all right well how do i cut it out and then i was playing around with like cutting out different sections of it and seeing where where can i get rid of weight and where can i add weight and then playing with with sandwich decks you know pulling a lot like windsurf construction Mm -hmm. and bringing that into the the prone boards because the problem i was having especially winging is like when i jump and land there's just so much force going into the board that like I was crushing decks, I was buckling boards, I was ripping out boxes. So trying to build something that has like that durability. So I was looking into windsurfing and how they would do it, but then yeah. I don't want a eight pound board. Like that's just, that's no fun to ride. So trying to keep, you know, those mid four foot boards, like under five and a half pounds was always the, the trick and like the hard part. I did a test had to be like three and a half years ago now it was like when the element 115 was like the model and it was a marco one and a quarter pound blank with a stringer and i glassed it epa or glassed it just s cloth and on the bottom i did nothing for the boxes just routed the boxes out but then i did like six or seven six ounce carbon patches over the box to basically create a plate that mm-hmm. the boxes were were kind of like attached to that went over the stringer and i did two two protos like that that have now been surfed been foiled for like the last three years they've changed hands a few times that are both still good the boxes never broke and that's still a test i think about all the time like you know if you just create a plate there that kind of rests on that stringer it added right 
strength that those boxes never those boards were the lightest boards I've ever made. They came out at like four pounds or something. Wow, that's pretty good. It's crazy. Yeah, I was having a hard time because I hadn't really worked with carbon before. So I was having a, a lot of it was just figuring out like how to do vacuum bagging and not destroy your board. The very first one I did, I laid it up, threw it in a bag, and I pulled a vacuum on it. And when it came out, it looked like a wrinkly old grandma, like the board shrunk <laughs> by like four inches because it's all one pound, right? So it's basically yeah. air. And yeah, I learned that, you know, full vacuum was way too much and dialing that in. And then I ended up developing essentially an, an infusion process to where I could pull the resin through it and not have to like do wetlands. And that was a big step for me in, in getting strength away optimized to where I, I could remove about three layers out of the board to get the same flexural strength. That's awesome. I've always done, I've never played with like real vacuum bagging. I've played with what I call like poor man's vacuum bagging, whereas where you yeah. put over- like You wrap a, it in the painter's yeah. plastic. Yeah, and then just squeegee it as hard as you can. Yeah, I mean, I think that they they all have their their place, right? Like how much more am I gaining from a like a proper vacuum bag as opposed to like the quote poor man's vacuum bag? I made a bunch of like little dog bones and did pull tests on them. And like, it really wasn't a whole lot. But for me, what I was finding was I was getting a lot more consistency in the, in the board with using like an actual vacuum bag. Mm -hmm. I tried a couple like the poor man's way and I like didn't get, and obviously like the skill in doing it, you know, it's operator error, but I had a couple spots, like I didn't get it fully wrapped in like a concave or a groove or something like that. And I'd have a little bubble in there that I'd have to sand out and fare in. Where like when I was using the vacuum pump, it was a lot easier for me to get like really consistent and clean laminations, but it took, shoot, I think it took me probably 25 boards before I made one that I was like, all right, this is pretty good. Yeah. The, it's something I'd really like to play with right now where we live. I have no play space whatsoever, no workshop, which is, it's tough. It's the only thing I miss about where we were living when we were up North, we had a big barn. I had four rooms of a barn all dedicated to glassing. Oh, nice. It was epic. Oh. Yeah, for a while I had a shop in, in the Palvella Cannery where like all the big surfboard manufacturers are in, in Hawaii. You know, like KT's up there, SOS Shapes, Nelson Designs, Dawn Patrol, like all those guys are in there. So there's like just this crazy wealth of knowledge. And like I felt just like a Grom hanging out in these glass shops, like talking to them and like trying to pick little, because everyone's real secretive about what they do, right? They don't want to like share too many tricks of the trade in a sense. You just hang out and talk and like, oh, I'll take your trash out. Hey, how, how you doing this? How you throwing logos out? You know, like just trying to pick up little nuggets of information from, from guys that have it all. And like, it was, it was a really fun thing to do. Um, but yeah, I mean, for me, it just fell into one of those, like, you don't, you don't get rich building surfboards and there's only so many hours in the day and, you know, between family and working and trying to get on the water and it just, it fell out of the, the benefit matrix, if you will. Yeah, no, I get that completely. My wife yells at me all the time about Portal. Yeah. Because I've spent so much time on it over the years, and it's probably been the worst business I've ever been a part of in a lot of ways, but also the most fun. Oh, 100%. Yeah, building boards is a labor of love. Like, we're <laughs> we're not buying jets, building surfboards. <laughs> uh, we just got hit with some, like, business license for Jacksonville Beach, even though we don't do anything here. And she's like, do you really need this, Eric? Like, yep. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> oh, that's rad. Yeah. So cool. What What do you got coming up on the horizon? What are you excited about? I guess in the future, next year's race season. Yeah, last year I missed the I missed pretty much the whole season because of injury. 
It took me, I was out of the water for about two months. I had a cracked femur surfing, just fell towing and fell wrong. And it, yeah, cracked. Surfing, not, not drilling? Toe surfing, sorry. Yeah. Like flat board in the water, toe surfing, okay. not foiling. Foiling is safe. Surfing is dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that was a huge bummer. I was out of the water for about two months doing a bunch of rehab and PT. I, I developed like this gnarly IT band syndrome too. So like I couldn't bend my leg. I was just in excruciating pain for, for the longest time. And then like, I mean, I'm, I'm like in the water every day. So to go from being in the water every day to not being in the water for two months was like, it was really sucky. I was like just depressed and grouchy and like just super bombed. And of course, like I'm seeing the downwind people just firing. The wind is 25 knots straight east, like all time. And here I am at home, like with my binoculars, watching people go just oh. being miserable. Yeah, it was, it was awful. But like that kind of sparked a fire to put a lot more effort into my dry land training. So that, you know, I can try to mitigate that as much as possible. But basically when I got back in the water was like mid July last summer. So I wasn't trained. I wasn't conditioned. I wasn't, you know, skilled for, for the crossings and the races. So I was like, everyone's training and going and I'm going with them, but it's like for, for what, you know, I don't have that like light at the end of the tunnel. So this year I'm really excited to, to be able to participate or hopefully be able to participate in all the races, you know, Maui to Molokai, Molokai to Oahu, Petalamua, maybe try to get out to the gorge. And it's cool, you know, with this downwinding, it's it's blown up. And I think that like last year was the biggest foiling field ever. And I think this coming year is going to be even bigger. So I just think it's really fun to see all these people from all over the world come out to, to this little island in the middle of the ocean and send the sport that we all have this common bond over. It's amazing. Did you see the inertia article? The latest one about yeah. foiling surfing or the future surfing? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I did. Did you There's... see the comments on Instagram? Oh, that was like, I spent like 30 minutes just laughing, reading them. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, there's a whole bunch of future foilers in this comment section. They better hope that nobody digs up their Instagram past. <laughs> yeah, it would be fun to like keep a record of that. Just, to, you know. I know, right? He won 10%. Well, yeah, and so many of them, it's like, I feel like, if you looked at, I clicked in like a handful of people's profiles that were like, no, foiling sucks. You know, surfing's the best. And like, you look at it and are like, dude, you can barely surf to begin with. So like, what's keeping you from trying foiling? Like what, what you don't <laughs> want to suck? Like have, keeping them. have you watched yourself surf? <laughs> keeping you from sucking is not the reason. <laughs> and I'm saying this as a self-proclaimed sucky surfer. Like I'm not a good surfer. I'm not that good at foiling. Like it's super fun. I think to like, not be good at these sports and to try them and learn them. And like, I have a fun time trying to get good at it or trying to learn it. How do you foresee the next, you know, five to 10 years of surfing and foiling coexisting and the adaption from surfers into foiling? You're always going to have holdouts, right? People have surfed for their entire lives. You know, guys have spent 30, 40 years trying to surf. And there's some people that they just won't try something new and like, whatever, you know, that's more waves for me, less foilers in the lineup. Great. Go for it. But I think it's going to slowly spill more and more mainstream in the sense of like, there's all these top professional surfers that are like really into foiling 
And I think that just helps the sport gain traction and helps it, I guess, become like legitimized in a sense or move away from this like fringe ocean sport into like a more accessible, more mainstream thing. I think the gear development is really helping with the sport too. Like if I learned to foil now, it'd be way easier than it was, you know, six years ago, seven years ago. And I think that's just going to help people get into the sport and help it grow. And I think just foilers being cooler in general than surfers is good for the sport. You know, it seems like anytime someone's learning to foil, it's like a overall positive experience where like a lot of people learning to surf, everyone has that story of like, oh, that guy was like a real jerk to me in the lineup and like made me not feel like I wanted to surf here. I feel like most people in foiling are like, oh my God, everyone was frothing. Everyone was having super, like a really good time. It was really just like a positive, encouraging thing. Yeah. I think that in places like Florida, at some point it's going to catch like wildfire. I mean, the amount of fun surfing versus foiling, like that differential, it's a hundred to one, you know, over the course of a year, you might have some days that are better for surfing, but even those days, the towing is just insane. I think it's more fun to tow when it's big here than to surf when it's big here. So it's like, yeah, at some point people will start to figure that out. What percentage of the top, say 100 surfers in the world do you think are foil, like folks who have spent some time on foil at, right now? I think public, publicly and privately are probably two different numbers. <laughs> I think there's a lot of, <laughs> right. I think there's, I would say probably, uh, I don't know, 60 plus percent have at some point dabbled or tried to dabble to a level privately. It still seems like, you know, publicly there's, they stay in their lane in a sense, or like they know their brand, they know what they're, what they're paid to do. So they live that that public facing life in a sense. Mm -hmm. But then you have guys like, like John, John, you know, he's a world champion and he's out sending downwind runs. And I think something that I look at too, is like, you know, growing up looking at Hawaii is like, you know, the future, right? What you see in Hawaii takes like two or three years to trickle down to be like everywhere or grow. And I'd see it, you know, living 5,000 miles away. And then, you know, you go over and you see everyone's windsurfing and then you go home and then next year you go back and now everyone's kite surfing. And then like, you know, three years later, now a bunch of people are kite surfing. So I think that like foiling, you know, it's, it's only growing and like just how it's exploded here in Hawaii. I think that that trickle down is happening and like the, the spread of it is growing. Like every day there's more people getting on a foil. People are figuring out that it's really fun to foil two foot waves. Like surfing two foot waves is not fun. In my opinion, foiling two foot waves is epic. And I think there's so many spots that just have killer two foot waves that like, if you pick up the foil, you're going to have so much fun and you're going to ride so many waves versus surfing them. Yep. I love it. Steve, this has been epic catching up. What do you want to leave folks with? Man, I'm just super stoked to be here. I'm really thankful to be on the podcast to talk with you. I've been listening for a long time. It's really cool to be a part of it. I think that if anyone's, on the fence about trying to jump into foiling or a different aspect of foiling. They're afraid to start downwinding. They're afraid to tow wing, just go do it. Like what, what do you have to lose? You know, everyone's been a kook. Everyone's been a beginner and just have fun learning and keep pushing the sport. And I think the more people that we have behind it, the, the better the sport will be. And the more, I don't know, just the more people we'll have in our network. Well, thank you for coming on. 
and i can't wait to catch some waves with you guys at some point yeah dude hopefully you guys make it out here Deconstructing foiling, flow, and the learning process with your host, Eric Antonson.